I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we'll be looking at all five chapters of the book of James. We'll be looking at the high points of the commentary. If you'd like a complete view of the commentary, go to www.bibletrack.org. So we start with who wrote James. James, according to many scholars, may be one of the earliest letters to believers in the New Testament. Even though there were two other men named James who were apostles of Christ, we find those in Matthew 10, verses 2-4, through 4, it is generally agreed by most students of the New Testament that this James, the one that wrote the book of James, is the same one who headed up the church back in Jerusalem, and that's the Lord's brother. This particular James, the one featured in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21 as being head of the church there, was not one of the apostles. Uh, the tone of the letter, though, seems in keeping with the role of James in Acts 15, Acts 21, in those Jerusalem councils. The Jewish historian Josephus reports that James was martyred around 62 AD, and if that's the case, then the book of James would have been written prior, of course, to that time. God's people will endure testing and trial. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because of the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof faileth. And the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, When he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The recipients of this letter are declared to be quite widespread in the very first verse when he mentions the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. The phrase scattered abroad comes from a single Greek word, uh, diaspora. Uh, As a matter of fact, in English we pronounce it the diaspora, which speaks of the dispersion of Jews throughout the Roman Empire. The definite article here is used which would indicate that James is speaking of a particular dispersion of Jewish Christians. Perhaps the one suggested as Saul, later on called Paul, was on his tirade against the believers in Acts chapter 8. This was following Stephen's execution. 
Since they're all scattered, the 12 tribes is certainly James' way of indicating that his letters for all Jewish Christians, rather than being formally addressed to just individual tribes themselves. James refers to his letter recipients as brethren in verse 2. So in what sense does he consider them brethren? By blood relationship or is it by faith? Since James immediately gets to his point in the same sentence that trial and temptation is upon them because of their faith, he's undoubtedly referring to them as brethren based upon their faith in Christ. Why question that? Well, some have suggested a doubt regarding their status as Christian brethren. And that's based upon the conduct dealt with by James at the beginning of chapter 4. We'll see that in a few moments. However, since these Jewish Christians were scattered, there's simply no feasible way that James is singling out any particular incident, but rather he must be addressing general issues of interpersonal conflict among Jewish Christians, which he may have heard about from various sources. James discusses the issue of trials, temptations among believers. By the way, several Greek words are used in the New Testament for this adversity and are variously translated Read the article that I've written entitled Trial, Testing, and Temptation. That's on BibleTrack.org, front page, the index page, where you go when you first arrive at BibleTrack.org. There's a, a box that's pink down the middle of the page, and there you'll find the articles that I've written, and you'll find this article on Trial, Testing, and Temptation. I distinguish in that article among the different Greek words used to describe adversity for Christians. These words are variously translated, trial, trying, temptation, tribulation. All of those words refer to the difficult times in which God permits Satan to challenge our faith. Read the whole article, Trial, Testing, and Temptation, for greater insight on this issue. It's a fact, though, trial is necessary for Christian growth. Now, that doesn't mean that we flail in darkness when we undergo trial. Verse 5 provides a guarantee regarding trial, and here it is. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. That means that under trial we can know what God is working in our lives through that trial by simply seeking God's wisdom in prayer. Romans chapter 5, verses 2-4 through four gives the sequence for maturity in one's Christian life, and its primary component is trial. In other words, learn your lesson from trial, and then claim verse 12 here in this passage. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Trial draws us closer to God and makes us a reflection of him. Every believer should have a clear understanding of how to deal with adversity. Incidentally, I'm convinced that the guarantee of wisdom from verse 5 is not just limited to the area of trial. Wisdom from God is the key to answered prayer about anything a believer faces. The first step in prayer should always be to seek the wisdom of God about any matter. James continues with a lesson on praying with verses 6 through 8 here. When one seeks wisdom from God as the first step of prayer, then he is able to ask in faith. We see that in verse 6. Notice particularly John's formula for answered prayer in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Let me give you those two verses. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth whatsoever we ask, then we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. 
Well, there it is, clearly written. When we ask anything according to his will, he, meaning God, hears us. Well, how's that done? Well, there's your answer in James chapter 1, verse 5, asking God for wisdom. The disappointments of unanswered prayers are explained in verses 6 through 8. They were not prayers of faith because they were not founded on wisdom. A successful prayer life must be based upon the wisdom of verse 5. Unfortunately, most Christians are double-minded, indecisive when they pray. Why? It's because they didn't seek wisdom as the first step in their prayers. Verses 9 through 11 seem a bit out of place here. Keep in mind, these verses are located in the midst of verses about adversity. Relief from adversity was directly addressed in verses 2 through 4, followed by an admonition to pray for wisdom regarding that adversity in verses 5 through 8. The theme of adversity directly continues in verse 12. So verses 9 through 11 must be related to this whole theme of adversity. Perhaps the thought here is that the brother of low degree, the Greek word tapenos, means humble. Maybe these brothers of low degree seem to be experiencing more adversity than his not-so-hard-up brother. While the Greek word tapenos doesn't necessarily speak to material wealth, the comparison with the rich of verse 10 definitely indicates a comparison between those who have it and those who don't. Additionally, James picks this back up as a theme in chapter 2. It's important to note, however, that James is not simply talking about wealth here, but obviously the use of that wealth. He gives an illustration from nature in verses 10 and 11 to indicate that wealth itself is temporary with its final phrase, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. From that, we deduct that he's describing those who are stingy with their wealth while their Christian brethren are suffering. As seen above, the reward of those experiencing adversity is seen in verse 12 as eternal. That's compared to the temporal advantages of wealth. Verses 13 to 15 merit some special attention. If you read the article on trial, temptation, testing, you saw that Satan is one is the one who brings that adversity into the believer's life. That believer was capable of passing that test of adversity. That's a guarantee that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. But what if the believer does not pass the test of adversity which Satan instigates? What if the believer instead succumbs to temptation? Well... That's what we call sin. Allow me to quote a verse from chapter 4. James 4.17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth not, to him it is sin. In other words, sin for the believer is rebellion against God. Specifically, it's the rejection of the leadership of the Holy Spirit's convicting power in a believer's life. When a believer sins, God corrects just as a father corrects a son for disobedience. We find that concept in Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 8. That process is called chastisement. In that case, adversity in the believer's life as a result of sin is orchestrated by God himself. That's the nature of chastisement. Admittedly, this may seem a little confusing at this point. You ask, so what's the difference between trial and or testing, temptation. What's the difference between that and chastisement? 
Well, perhaps the clearest biblical example of trial is that of Job in the Old Testament. In Job chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we see that God permitted Satan to put Job to the test. And it was a horrific test. Everything that happened to Job was brought on him by Satan. So what was Satan's goal here? Well, we see it in that first chapter. It was to bring Job to a point in his life where he will curse thee, God, to thy face. Well, here's the differentiation between trial and chastisement. Were Job to have succumbed to that temptation, that would have been sin. But he didn't. However, sometimes believers do fall into Satan's trap, and they do that which they know to be sin. That's when chastisement from God is in order. For a greater understanding, read the article on the main page of BibleTrack.org entitled, Trial vs. Chastisement. It's also provided on the screen uh, here on the right side in the commentary of James on BibleTrack.org for today's reading, which is November the 21st. Now we'll begin reading with chapter 1, verse 16, where we see that words really do hurt. Verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will beget he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty... And continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man should be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In relation to material wealth, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So, what is the gift being referenced here? Well, it's the salvation of verse 18. Of his own will beget he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. With that in mind, obedient Christians are careful with their testimony before the world. This may be a good time to recall Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Here's what they say. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You see, words and actions are in view here in these verses. When believers are led with the Holy Spirit, these are the attributes that are displayed. Not a sharp tongue, as James speaks of here in this first chapter. James addresses the issue of the believers being doers of the word. Is it a coincidence that James talks about temptation followed by chastisement, followed by the quality of Christian conduct before the world? 
Ah, it's no coincidence. When a believer is serious about serving God, he will naturally protect his public testimony. In other words, Christ in one's life ought to be seen by others as a visible desire to please God. When believers are committed to our religion, then good things flow out from our lives. Religion there comes from the Greek word threskia, which means devout practices. Both our words, verse 26, and our actions in verse 27 are glorifying to God. You will notice in these verses that James seems to attribute a negative testimony to uncontrolled anger when he says in verse 20, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. This is followed by his admonition that believers should exercise the principles of their faith rather than simply being observers. He compares this to the man who looks in a mirror but makes no changes with regard to his appearance. However, looking into the Word of God ought to result in a desire for positive change, a change that will come through the working of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we see that James admonishes these folks to refrain from partiality. Verse 1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not partial in yourselves, and have become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you, and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if ye have respect to persons, you commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill... Thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak you, and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. In this passage that we just read, verses 1 through 13, James resumes a theme that he touched on in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And that's the relationship between those who are wealthy within the local assembly and those who aren't. Incidentally, James refers to the assembly with the Greek word that is usually translated synagogue. The book of James being a very early epistle, the assembly of believers probably retained this designation until the term church, the Greek word ekklesia, uh, which means called out assembly, before that began to be used. He's obviously talking about an assembly of Jewish believers here. Let's face it, it's bad to esteem one believer over another. To favor the wealthy-looking man over the poorly-dressed man is to superficially judge based upon evil thoughts, verse 4. Wealth has nothing to do with one standing with Christ. We see that in verse 5. 
So James encourages his readers not to show the same disdain for the poor that the rich of the world do. Verse 6, After all, it is they who persecute all believers, as seen in verse 7. Then, speaking of the Ten Commandments, James refers to the last six commandments as they treat others like royalty commandments. Verse 8, Because these last six commandments deal with the person-to-person relationship, while the first four deal with the person-to-God relationship. Christ sets the precedent for dividing the Ten Commandments up into these two categories in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, when he points out that the greatest commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Then he goes to identify the second by saying this, And the second is likened to it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. These two commandments identify the intent of the Old Testament law. So, what about the believer who demonstrates a love for God, but does not demonstrate a love for people? James points out that to keep all the commandments except one is to still be a violator of the law. Spirit-led believers will treat others just like royalty. This very clear epistle written to Jewish believers draws upon their continual adherence to the law of Moses in these verses. James emphasizes that respect for one's fellow believer, rich or poor, is just as important as exercising restraint in adultery or murder. He then refers to the contrast between law and grace when he declares in verse 12, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Jesus had emphasized this concept in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, when he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. He serves a warning to those who ignore this exhortation in verse 13, where he says, For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath shown no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. When you serve out judgment without mercy, don't be surprised when you are the recipient of judgment without mercy. Thank the Lord that God is merciful. As we look, begin looking at chapter 2, verse 14 here, here's what we see in these next group of verses. People are looking for evidence of salvation. What is that evidence? They're looking for works in a Christian's life. Verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. 
Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I often hear people say, I just don't care what people think about me. I generally conclude that they are lying when they tell me that. Everybody cares to some degree, even those who want to be known for saying they don't. These verses actually continue the theme of verses 1 through 13. Since the fruit of the Spirit will demonstrate attributes in a believer that eliminate the danger of a violation of verses 1 through 13, the violator of verses 1 through 13 must question his motivation. James is pointing out that the natural tendency of salvation is to do good works. That's what the world sees in us. How do we demonstrate our salvation with others? Answer, good works. So is it fair for the world to be inspecting our lives for indications of salvation in Jesus Christ? Well, maybe not, but then again, life's not fair. These 13 verses are quite troubling to many people. Some even use these verses to promote a works-based salvation. Others are troubled by what appears to them to be a contradiction of Paul in Romans chapter 4. As a matter of fact, James and Paul even use a common example, and that example is Abraham. Let's take a look at the words that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now admittedly, that may seem confusing in light of the statements that we've just seen made by James. Let's take another look at James' words. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. And that was James chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. Of the two epistles, Romans was likely written much later than James. The audience was quite different as well. James was written to Jewish believers. We see that in chapter 1, verse 1, the 12 tribes. While Jews and Romans were quite sparse. James was dealing with the big problem in the early church that was especially visible in Jerusalem, and that was the equal treatment of believers in the church. We see that problem in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 21. As you will recall from the book of Acts, there was a very slow transition for those who had been raised as Jews to a life of grace in Christ from a life dictated by the law of Moses. James discusses the godly treatment of others in chapter 2. He makes the point that faith in Christ ought to be represented by love for all believers. His emphasis is that real faith ought to be demonstrable. When it isn't, well, it just ought to be. James is talking about how others view our religion in James 1, verses 26 and 27. 
He's emphasizing our visible testimony of works to demonstrate our faith to others, not as the conditions for saving faith. Paul, on the other hand, is strictly talking about the simplicity of salvation without works. So you see, Paul emphasizes the actual condition for obtaining salvation, faith alone, while James is talking about public testimony. Context for both passages is very important here. Speaking of context, let's get specific here. James seems to be addressing those who are among the wealthier in the assembly when he talks about works. Look at the example that he gives in verses 15 and 16. It deals with a brother or sister, as in believers or a believer who is destitute. The action of works referenced here are those of sharing one's wealth in such situations. Taken in context, taken in context, it further shows James' intent and makes us realize what works he's talking about here. Works of generosity. That's what's being addressed in verse 17 when he says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. These are works of generosity. The devils believe that there is one God, verse 19, but their actions aren't positively affected. Therefore, believing the one God concept does not constitute salvation. The further examples of Abraham and Rahab are intended to show that faith fosters a proactive direction in one's life. To sum it up, salvation is by grace alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. One isn't saved or even kept saved by a work supplement to salvation. After salvation, however, pure religion and undefiled before God, verse 27 of James chapter 1, that quality will demonstrate one's salvation to others by the way one lives his life. In James chapter 3, we get into taming that tongue. Chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which, though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature." and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. Doth the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Here in chapter 3, we're still continuing our theme of lifestyle that we began in chapter 2. 
James begins by saying, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Let's look at a couple of Greek words in this verse. Masters comes from the Greek word didaskalos, which means teachers. Here the King James Version uses it in the context of a master teacher. The Greek word for condemnation is krima, which means judgment, but not necessarily condemnatory judgment. James is declaring that teachers of the word of God have a greater responsibility before God for their words and actions. That sets the tone for the comments to follow. In verse 2, he explains that when you can control your words, your actions will follow. One who controls his words and actions is, he says, perfect. That's the Greek word teleos, which means mature or complete. He's a perfect man. The lesson of these verses is this. Watch your mouth. Several analogies are used to illustrate animals, fire, ships, just as a large horse is able to be comfortably controlled by a small bridle, so is the tongue. Just as a large ship is able to be controlled by a small rudder, so is the tongue. Just as a large fire can be started by a small spark, so can controversy out of words from the tongue. All of these are to be driven, all of these analogies are to drive the point home that a loose tongue can do a great deal of damage. James then addresses the unregenerate nature of the tongue, actually of the loose tongue of the carnal man when he says in verse 8, But the tongue can no man tame, it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Because of our carnal nature, sometimes the same tongue can speak honorably and sometimes dishonorably. We see that in verses 9 and 10. Being controlled by the Spirit is in view here when he makes the point in verses 11 and 12 that your tongue indicates what's in your heart. In other words, if you have a sharp, mean tongue, it's probably because you're a sharp, mean person. I don't make the news, I just report it. Again, we should take note of the results of being controlled by the Holy Spirit, as we saw in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where we saw the fruit of the Spirit. When we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, then our tongue is likewise controlled. All right, here's a question for you. Where does that meanness come from? We see the answer to that in James chapter 3, beginning with verse 13 down through verse 18. Here it is. Who is a wise man and a dude with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. As these verses pointed out, meanness doesn't come from God. Godly wise men display a positive Christian testimony, verse 13. We see then in verses 14 to 16 that bitter envying and strife are not products from God, but are instead earthly, sensual, and devilish. As a matter of fact, we see in those verses that, that uh, they look a lot like Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where we find the fruit of the Spirit. When believers are not led by the Holy Spirit, the old Adamic nature begins to dominate. 
Victorious Christian living is only possible through control of the Holy Spirit in one's life. Let's be clear. Contentious behavior toward believers does not originate from God. Incidentally, it's the Adamic nature in each of us that gives us the propensity to sin from the very day of our births. We have this sinful nature, and it's in each of us because of Adam's fall in Genesis chapter 3. If you'd like a greater understanding about this Adamic nature, then look at the passages and the commentaries on the following. Romans chapter 5, verse 14. See my notes on BibleTrack.org. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. All of those passages that I just listed deal with the Adamic nature, the nature that we have with the propensity to sin as a result of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. That brings us to chapter 4, where we see that people of God should act like people of God. Verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell, and, and get again. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say... If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. James takes off here on worldly acting believers. It's really a continuation at the end of chapter 3 regarding strife compared to godly wisdom. In addition to fightings, James uses a very strong word here to describe these conflicts. The Greek word for war is polemos, which is the military term for war. Keep in mind, his readers are scattered, so there may not be a particular situation about which he's speaking here. However, James is obviously driving home the seriousness of the strife that we saw in chapter 3. There's no question James is referring to believers who are acting like most lost people in verses 2 through 4. Uh, for those who would maintain that verses 2 through 4 describe the unregenerate, instead, 
Take a look at verses 5 through 10. James acknowledges the tendencies of the carnal man when he says in verse 5, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? James seems to be pulling together some Old Testament concepts into one concise thought regarding man's propensity to sin. However, he does declare that this propensity is overcome by grace. We see that in verse 6. Submitting to God and resisting the devil in verse 7, and by drawing close to God in verse 8. And these are the steps that an out-of-fellowship-with-God believer should take to get back on the correct footing with God. James actually itemizes some steps to restoration with God in verses 8 through 10 when he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Then he says, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Then be afflicted and mourn and weep. Followed by, Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. And finally, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. These steps are intended to make these misdirected believers Cease their reprehensible conduct, display remorse, and turn to God. Now, don't lose sight of the theme here. We're reminded of the theme once again in verse 11 where it says, Speak not evil one of another. That's right. It's still their interaction between one another that's being addressed here. They have the law of Moses, which they must have thought they were honoring when they exercised such contentious behavior in verses 11 and 12. Finally, in verses 13 through 17, James points out how the temporary life really is. If you want to prepare, prepare for eternity and stop placing so much value on temporary things. We see in verse 17 the definition of sin for the believer. Let's take care to understand the distinction here. This verse references the actions taken by believers when it says, therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not to him it is sin. This knowledge of knowing good comes from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, continually offering leadership. When a believer violates this Holy Spirit leadership toward good, that constitutes sin. Keep in mind, we're not talking about just blatant, overt sin here, but James is including conduct that may look fine on the outside, but is really not surrendered at all to the Holy Spirit's leadership on the inside. We see details regarding this leadership of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And finally, in James chapter 5, we have a warning to the unethical rich. Verse 1. Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl, for your misery shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are mothy. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rest of them shall be a witness against you. And ye shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Ye have lived in pleasure on earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. James takes uh, one more swipe at those rich who dwelt among their poor brethren and didn't share. These are strong words, so strong in fact that it almost seems that he must be describing lost people. Actually, they're the same people reproved in each of the preceding four chapters. 
their less fortunate brethren were suffering while they were living in luxury and refusing to share. Now, these verses are addressing those who came by their riches at the expense of others through unethical and dishonest means. They stood by and perhaps even participated in the unjust treatment of their less fortunate brethren who were scattered also. From the wording of verse 6, not only did they not assist their needy brethren, they participated in the conviction and execution of those who were needy. Murder is not necessarily the meaning here, but unjust treatment in the courts resulting in execution, that may be what is meant here. Now, verses 7 through 12. Unpatience is described here. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Now we turn back to those who are suffering. Patience and mutually honoring treatment is encouraged between them. The Lord is coming back, but until he returns... Be diligent in your work and get along with other people. Ill treatment of your brethren reaps one's own condemnation. The suffering under adverse condition prophets are cited here as examples. Jeremiah was placed in prison and lowered into a cistern just for telling the truth of God. In addition, an example of Job's patience is given as, as far as being patient under adversity. No question about it, Job is the poster child for adversity. Just read the book of Job and you'll see what I mean. Oh, uh, then there's verse 12. Let your word be such that you don't need to be swearing by anything in order to convince folks to believe you. When you have a reputation for telling the truth, swearing by an oath just isn't necessary. The concept that is addressed by Jesus himself to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Then we have the prayer for the sick, beginning with verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. We see that James deals with praying for the sick by the elders of the church. Some have suggested that the anointing of oil in verse 14 is really just applying medicine to an injury or taking some medicine. They attempt to do a play on Greek words to make their point. That's a very weak argument of Scripture. The uh, Greek word alepho is used here 
as it is every time in the New Testament when oil is used ceremonially to anoint. James is teaching a procedure of anointing the individual who has health issues with oil after they have come to the elders to ask for this procedure. Since the directions seem to be quite exact here, it seems inappropriate for an elder or elders to do the actual calling. In other words, like a healing line at a religious meeting. The process starts with the ill person calling for the elders and not vice versa. A confession of sins seems to be an important component in this healing also. Some have attempted to dismiss these verses as belonging to another dispensation. I see no evidence to that being the case in the scriptures. Therefore, when folks ask the elders to gather together, anoint with oil, and pray for their sickness, it appears to be a New Testament mandate for us to do exactly that. So, what about those who turn their backs on God? We see that in verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Don't make the mistake of seeing this as spiritual death. When a person assists another believer in seeing his deviation from sound Christian practice, he helps to deliver him from certain chastisement and bodily death, possibly. The Greek word for convert here is epistrepho, and it means to turn again. Christians who rebel against God need to be converted back to their serving God status. As I mentioned before, if you want to understand more about the difference between trial and chastisement, then read the article that I've written on the front page of BibleTrack.org in the center column called Trial versus Chastisement. You'll get a clear perspective on this concept. These two verses, by the way, have nothing to do whatsoever with salvation in Christ. It's only, they're only talking about physical chastisement. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.